Okay, so we are, we're starting uh, week two of our series on living in the lion's den. And so Pastor Rene, he kind of laid the foundation for this study in the, in the book of Daniel. And he talked about our culture and how crazy our culture is and what the God of this world, Satan, wants to do to us as Christians, wants to do to us in America and around the world. He wants to, the devil wants to remove all semblance of Christianity from our country. And he is trying in many different ways to attack the fundamental beliefs that we hold to. And so it is like living in a lion's den in our culture. That's the premise of the series. It's, it's like living in a culture where, where everywhere we turn, whether it's TV or music or relationships with people on your job that don't know Jesus, or, or, politicians, everywhere you look, there are people who are against Jesus. Not necessarily against religion, but against Jesus, against Christianity, against God's word. And so the, the point of the series is to encourage us as believers that we're not alone, that we're not by ourselves. That, that God is with us and that even though we're in the lion's den of, of, of a culture, like a lion's den, that God is here through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of his word to strengthen us, to support us, and, 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 and we can stand strong. We don't have to compromise. Just like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bend to the culture and did not compromise, and they stood their ground, their lives are an example for us that we can do the same in the middle of a crazy culture. And so we're looking at chapter 3. He covered, kind of summarized the first two chapters. And we're going to look specifically at chapter 3 this morning. And chapter 3 is a, the whole chapter is, is an account, is the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And so before we get into that content, I, I just want to talk about or, or ask a question. What does victory look like through a Rio Olympics point of view? You know, the Olympics have been going on lately. Last seems like forever. It's like, does it ever end? <laughs> How long does it last? Three weeks? I'm not quite sure. It's like, it's always there. Channel 6 on DirecTV uh, is always the Olympics. And then Channel 220, then Channel 205. It's just going on, right? But what, if you would look at victory through the lens of the Rio Olympics, what would you say victory looks like? Gold medal. Silver medal is the first loser. <laughs> and the bronze medal is worse than that. It's like, it's like the, one who, the ones who win the bronze and they're like acting like they're excited, but inside you know they're like really upset. Like, you know, especially ones that have won gold previously. Like when Michael Phelps won a silver, uh, one of those last races, uh, his last individual race, you know, he was smiling up on that podium with the silver, but you know, it was eating him up. He wanted that gold because victory through that lens is gold medal or bust. Just think about what they do in the Olympics building up to that. They work four years for an individual skill and they get up and they compete and it's all or nothing. You lay it all on the line. Four years, it's a lot longer than four years worth of training. You're talking these, these athletes, they've been training since they were kids year after year after year after year after year after year and silver is the first loser and bronze is worse than that and that's the same view that we have in our american culture you don't have to just think about the olympics victory looks like smashing the competition destroying them victory looks like winning the super bowl the world series the nba finals or my favorite sport putting on the green jacket Winning the Masters Golf Tournament. That's victory right there. That's amazing. 
Losing looks like finishing second place. Losing looks like winning, losing looks like winning silver or bronze. Losing looks like the 2007 New England Patriots. You remember that? Anybody remember the New England Patriots in 2007? What was their regular season record? Somebody shout it out to me. 16 and 0. And then they won their first two playoff games, got to 18 and 0. And what happened in the Super Bowl? They choked. <laughs> Absolutely choked. And, and, their, and their record was 18 and 1. It, it was, it was the, of all people, the New York Giants who finished that year almost 500. Barely squeaked into the playoffs, and they beat the undefeated Patriots. That's losing. <laughs> and that's, that's terrible. That, that whole regular season, as brilliant as it was, as much numbers as Tom Brady and Randy Moss put up, they were the first losers. Losing looks like the 2016 Golden State Warriors. It does. As much as it pains me to say this, as much as... Uh, I like the Golden State Warriors. 73-9 and regular season record. The greatest regular season record of all time. And they lost the NBA Finals. The Bulls had the greatest record before that. 72-10. and No one thought they would ever be beaten. But they beat it. But they lost in the Finals to LeBron James. Really breaks my heart. <laughs> That's losing. To get, to get that far and to lose it. We don't value any level of smaller victories in our culture, do we? We don't value that. And this is what I think happens when we look at Bible stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like David and Goliath. Like all these stories, we look at those in that same type of view. It's ultimate victory. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were not burned. It, was, it says in the account that we're going to look at that... Their hair was not singed, and there was no smell of smoke on their clothes. Ultimate victory. There was no second place there. It wasn't get partially burned, but not die. They were completely victorious. And so what I think happens to us in America and around the world when we look at victory that way, we can kind of look at that type of victory as a fairy tale. I know about you, but sometimes when I watch a Super Bowl or a World Series or, or NBA Finals, and I look at these men that are celebrating this victory... When it's over, I turn it off and I say, back to real life, back to my reality. And so I think the same thing happens whenever we read stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We read the story, no hair singed, no smell of smoke on the clothes. We close it and we say, back to real life, back to my, to my difficult marriage, back to my hard time on my job, back to my loved one with cancer, back to my challenges back to the rising rivers in baton rouge back to my flooded house back to reality that's real life and so this is what i want us to do i want us to relook at what victory is victory is not always just the gold medal victory is not always just winning the world series or the super bowl or the nba finals victory is not just those things there are other ways that we win as believers and through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of Jesus at the center of our life, there are many victories that we face in real life circumstances. And so that's the lens I want us to look at this story. That's what I want us to look at. And so we're going to, I've got four points I want to emphasize to us to describe what victory looks like. What does real life victory look like for us as believers in the midst of a crazy culture? The first way that victory looks 
is this. Number one, victory looks like not giving in to the mounting pressure. Let's read Daniel 3, verse 1. This is the beginning of the story. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So when I read that, as I began to look at the story through this lens, it just this was immediately what jumped up in my heart that I wanted to cover. I kind of knew what was going on in our area. And I just, I didn't want to come and give you a hoorah message this morning. Okay? I didn't want to come give you a hoorah message. I wanted, I wanted to help us handle and wrap our minds around how God is with us in our difficulties. And so when I, when I began to look at it through that lens, I started thinking, okay, what would it have been like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to see this image being built? It says that it was 60 cubits and uh, uh, um, height and 6 cubits width. And so it was 90 feet tall and 9 foot wide. And more than likely, it was placed on a, on a pedestal. And so it was, made of, it was made of wood. The frame would have been made of wood, but it was overlaid with pure gold. And so I begin to think about this. I don't believe, like, you know, when you read the story, it could appear that, the, that Nebuchadnezzar just builds this image. And then the next day, he says, everyone must bow down to it and worship. Or you get thrown into the fiery furnace. That, that could appear to be that way. But I don't think that was the reality. I don't believe that it took 24 hours to build a 90-foot tall uh, um, um, statue and overlay it with gold in these days. It could have taken Weeks, months, possibly over a year's worth of time for them to construct this. And so people would have known there would have been mounting pressure about what was going to take place for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar was crazy. And he was a very egotistical man as a king. And so they would have known what was taking place. Word would have begun to spread that he was building this image. And who would have known what these rumors would have been like. And there was pressure that was building in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's mind about what could possibly be taking place here, what they were going to have to face. And I believe this is exactly what we face in our culture. Everywhere we turn, everywhere we turn, there are monuments being built to the false gods of our culture. What are some of the false gods of our culture? We could list a lot of them this morning. Some of them are Money, power, sex, identity expression. That's a God of our culture. Everyone has to express themselves in whatever way they want to express themselves. And you can't tell them anything about their expression. That's a God, false God of this culture. Sports is a God of this culture. Just think of the people. And I know people in South Louisiana and Saints country hate preachers to harp on football but it really is a reality just think about all the people when the saints regular season starts and the home games are there think about how many people are not going to attend church that call themselves christians think about that it's gonna happen you're gonna have people who will bow down and worship to the false god of sports who who their day revolves around how good their sport team does on the the sundays after lsu plays football whenever if they lose the atmosphere in churches all across South Louisiana are normally melancholy. And people are struggling to worship the God of creation because their sports team lost. It is a God, a false God 
in our culture. And everywhere we turn, there is mounting pressure. It's like this 90-foot tall, 9-foot wide monument to the false gods of our culture is constantly being built. It's being constructed. And there's mounting pressure for us to compromise, to take upon ourselves the view of this culture, and to reject the biblical standard. Victory looks like not giving in to the mounting pressure. As believers, we live in a pluralistic society, just like Babylon in this day, where there was many false gods. And that's how we are in America. There are many false gods that are created. And the people who worship these false gods, they don't mind us worshiping our God privately. They don't mind that. But whenever we decide to worship publicly... When we decide to speak of our God, Jesus Christ, publicly, that's when there's problems. And there's that mounting pressure that we feel, that we have to be silent. We have to run to our closet. We have to hide the truth of God's word. None of that is true. We are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You can try to hide it. You can try to put it under a bushel. You can try to cover it up. But if the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has shone in your heart, no matter how strong the mounting pressure is, it's going to shine through in your life. If you will, if you stay true to the gospel, it will shine through in your life. Victory looks like not giving in to the mounting pressure. There is pressure from our culture to lay down our distinctives as Christians, to lay them down, to say that Jesus is not the only way, to say that Jesus is just one of the ways to get to heaven. But you know what, brothers and sisters this morning, our distinctives are what set us apart. That's what makes us who we are as Christians, that if we lose our distinctives, we lose what what makes us believers in Jesus Christ, then we have nothing, then we're a false church, a false believer. But they want us to lay down our distinctives. Our public victories, whenever we don't give in to the mounting pressure, our public victories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they stood before the king and they said, we will not bow down. That public victory was won way before it was ever seen. It was won in private. It's the little decisions that we make to not give in to the mounting pressure. It's the small things. You know why? Because God sees you in secret. God sees you when no one sees you. The little small victories. And whenever it comes up to a big test, you've been like David. You've killed the lion and the bear. And now Goliath is here. And now it's your big test. And you don't cave in. You don't give in to the mounting pressure to compromise your beliefs and your standards. Matthew 6 alludes to this, this picture of God seeing in secret. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus says the same thing in the next section. He says it about prayer. Don't be like the hypocrites and sound the trumpet when you come into church. I want everyone to see that I'm praying. You don't have to post your prayer life on Facebook. Hey, this morning I'm 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 doing my devotion on Facebook this morning. I'm reading this section and I'm praying. Don't do that. 
Do it in secret. The, the, the praise you get on Facebook, that doesn't, if you, that, if that's the reward you want to get, then that's the reward you're going to get. But when you do it in secret, you say, God, I don't care who sees me. I don't care who sees what I do. I know that you see what I do in private and those small victories of being faithful when the pressure is building to compromise, those small victories will prepare the way for when I have to stand before kings and say, no, I'm not going to worship your false God. That's what happens. Your character is built in secret. Amen? Amen. The second thing I see, the second definition of victory is this. This is Daniel 3.8. It says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. So Nebuchadnezzar builds this, begins to build this altar. And we just describe this mounting pressure as this image is being built. But then he makes a, he makes a decree that says that, that whenever it's built and the trumpets are blown and the instruments are, are playing, that whenever everyone, wherever they are in that region, hears that music, they have to bow down and worship the image. And so these people who knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says they began to speak maliciously against them. And they had it out to get them. So what, what does victory look like? Number two, victory looks like graciously responding to those who hate you. Graciously responding to those who hate you. How should we respond to those who think and believe differently than us? What do we, what do we normally do? What's our tendency? It's to put up a fight. It's to, it's, it's to say, well, I believe this and you believe that and you're wrong and I'm right and there's wedges that are built and we fight. How should we respond to those who dislike us because of our belief in Jesus? I believe we should respond graciously to them. Jesus actually says to persecution, to hatred, what does he say? He says, rejoice when you receive those. That's what it says right here in John chapter 15. I think this helps our, our, our paradigm and our view of this. It says, John 15, 18 through 21, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If, it, if you were of the world, if you were like the godless people in our culture, the world would love you as its own. What, what, what do sinners do when they, when they want to celebrate their sin? They get all the sinners they can get together and say, let's celebrate and live our sinful ways together. They, they would want you to be like them and take part in their celebrations and their lustful behaviors. But because you are not of the world, if you're a believer here this morning, you are not of the world. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, because of that, the world hates you. The world hates you. What's, what's the next section? It says, remember the world that said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept, if they, these people in the world, if they kept my word, they would, they would, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. I'm always confused whenever Christians are confused over persecution and bad treatment from non-believers. It's confusing because if they persecuted Jesus, what did they do to Jesus? They killed him. They said, we're not going to listen to you. For some reason, we believe that the world's going to listen to us. <laughs> we, we think they will. 
It's only by God's spirit that the world will listen to us. Do you know why that is? Because the Bible says that the gospel is a stumbling block and, and an offense to the unbeliever. Why is it a stumbling block? Why is it an offense? It's because I'm looking at somebody and in the most loving way that I possibly can, after I've built relationship with them, I'm telling them, if you don't repent of your sins, you will spend an eternity separated from God. People don't like to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can be you can be sweet as you can be. You can give them money. You can say, I, you know, I want to give you a thousand dollars real quick before I tell you some really bad news. They'll take your thousand dollars. They'll be mad at you. Take your thousand dollars and spend it on sinful behaviors. <laughs> it's because that's what the God, that's the nature of the gospel. It is an offense. But. Only an offended heart can really find repentance. I don't know if, do you follow what I'm saying? Not an offense at what you do. There's a way, look, you don't come up and walk up to somebody and say, Vern, you're going to hell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they'd be offended and they would rightfully be offended. But a truly offended heart that has had the Holy Spirit working in their life and, and a true believer that has built relationship with them and demonstrated a true love and concern for their heart when they preach the gospel. They, yeah, they're still going to get offended, and they have to get offended first. But then out of that offense at the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work, and that seed begins to germinate, and it produces a harvest. Amen? The world hates us because that's our message. You know, Peter... You guys know the account of Peter in Matthew 26, and there's another account of it in, in the book of John. They're coming to arrest Jesus. He's about to be crucified, coming to arrest him. And Peter says, I'm not going to let that happen. You're not going to arrest Jesus. This is, this is my king. This is my Messiah. I've lived with him three and a half years, and he's laid down his life for me. And, and I, this is, I love Jesus. And so this soldier comes to get Jesus, a soldier named Malchus. And so Peter pulls out his sword. And it would have really been a, a long sword. It would have more than likely been like a dagger. And it says that he cut off Malchus's ear. Now, I don't personally believe Peter was trying to stop Malchus by cutting off his ear. I think he was trying to stop Malchus by getting his juggler. Jugular. <laughs> That's what I believe. Right? Wouldn't you think so? You're not trying to cut off someone's ear. So what does Jesus tell Peter? He says, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. That's not how I came. So whenever people attack you and they're trying to do evil to you, we don't attack them in return. When someone speaks evil of you on your job, whenever you're on your job and you're trying the best you can do to be the best worker you can possibly be, and you're trying to keep good biblical principles and you're not stealing your boss's time and you're being diligent and faithful and people are ridiculing you because you won't cheat on your time card, the list could go on and on the ways that you're standing for truth on your job. When they come and persecute you, you don't fight back. You keep silent. You close your mouth and you say, God, I know that you see. God, you were persecuted long before I was ever persecuted. And it was much worse than what I'm getting right now. I have not been persecuted to the shedding of blood. God, help me to endure, to patiently endure this persecution. And help me to love them. Help me to love them. We don't kill with the sword. When we are mistreated and persecuted, we kill them with kindness, grace, and forgiveness. That's always the winning recipe. Kindness, grace, and forgiveness. You, you can take the hardest-hearted non-believer that you know in your life right now, maybe a family member, a co-worker, maybe a boss, 
hardest hearted person, if you will consistently ask the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit to help you walk in patience and kindness and forgiveness towards that person, I guarantee you it will not be too long until their heart is open to hear the gospel. But if you respond in ways that are not godly and are reactionary, it just adds to that callous, to that callousness and their, their false view of what a Christian is. Victory looks like graciously responding to those who hate you. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have had to have done. Number three, victory looks like trusting in God no matter the outcome. Trusting in God no matter the outcome. And this is the culmination of the story. This is the beautiful part of the story. This is Daniel 3, 16 through 18. This is so amazing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is where the pressure was. They would not bow down. And so they got ushered into the king's chamber. And they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're saying that if we bow down, we go to the fire furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. Well, that sounds like it's faith, right? That's a faith. That's a faith filled statement. If this is what you're saying, King, that if we don't bow down, we're going to the fiery furnace. Our God is able and our God will deliver us out of your hand. And this is the title of my message, which I didn't tell you. Verse 18, but if not. Wait a minute. What do you mean, but if not? Didn't they just say this faith-filled statement right above that, that, that God is able and God will? It would seem like verse 18 would be a faithless statement. But I'm here to tell you this morning, that is the biggest faith-filled statement. Filled with faith. To look into the face of the potential of a fiery furnace, and to say, you know what? If God doesn't deliver me, if God doesn't come through, and I'm thrown in that fiery furnace, if that is what's going to, I will not bow down to you, O king. I will not bow down to your image. If I'm not delivered from the cancer, if I'm not, if, if I'm not, if I don't get the pay raise that I'm looking for, if I'm not delivered from the trials that I'm going through, I'm still not. God, I believe that you can. I believe that you're able, and I believe that you will. But if not... That's victory. That's true real life victory. Because that's where you live. And that's where I live. That's where we all live as humans. That is the human experience. And if we don't have a but if not, then whenever trials come and difficulties come and we do have our hair singed and we do smell like smoke on our clothes and we don't have a but if not mentality, then we're thrown for a loop. Then we don't know how to handle those situations. You see, what, 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 what I think we have to be careful of, we cannot believe. We cannot believe the false message that God is primarily interested in our temporary happiness. We can't believe that. This, is, this life is not the culmination of our existence. This, is, this life is not the end all. Heaven is where we're headed. Heaven is our home. There's a future way to your glory that we are moving towards. And all the temporary happiness, all the accumulation of wealth and the building of houses and, and the vehicles and the friendships and the relationships and as good as all that can be, this is not what our existence revolves around as believers. As non-believers, yes. That's all there is. It's right now. We cannot believe in this false message that says that God is primarily interested in you being healthy, wealthy, and happy. 
Does God want you depressed? No, he doesn't. Does God want you to be poor? No, he doesn't. Does God want you to not be able to make your ends meet? No, he doesn't. But God wants you to trust him. And God wants you to worship him alone and have no other idols before him. The fiery trials in our lives produce in us what fire does to gold. First Peter 1, 3 through 7 says this. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is, is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, we rejoice. That's where we're headed. Though now, for a little while, this life is a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, that, that the, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's powerful right there. I want to break that down for you real quick. This is what that verse says about trouble. A, trouble does not last. What does it say? So just a little while. Trouble, that's what it said in First Peter. It's just a little while. Trouble doesn't last. It's temporary. Trouble, B, serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. It says, if necessary. There's a purpose. And if you don't see a purpose in your struggle and you just want to blame it all on the devil and you want to give him all the, 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 the praise for that, I believe you'll miss the purpose of the trouble. Troubles are always there to refine us and make us more like Jesus. Trouble comes. See, trouble comes in various forms. You know, many of us, there's, we can start talking about our troubles and they're in various, many various different forms. And what impacts you and causes you grief may not impact me. And cause me grief. That's why we should always act in, 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 with compassion toward those that, that are suffering. Because we're not in their shoes. It comes in many different forms. And trouble, number D, or letter D, should not diminish our joy. Why? Why should not trouble diminish our joy? Because our joy is found in Christ. And our joy is not in temporary satisfactions and pleasures. Amen? This life for believers is not meant to be the place where we get our greatest satisfaction. God is primarily concerned with conforming us into the image of his son and using us to declare the message of the gospel. I want to read something to you real quick. This is the apostle Paul. Do you know that all the apostles, save one, John, were persecuted and martyred for their faith? You look into the New Testament, the lens of the, of the New Testament, we are graced to see that Christianity is not exempt from suffering. Because all the apostles and those that followed him were all persecuted. And the apostles, the founders, the foundation of, a, of the Christian church, all of them were martyred except for John. And listen to, listen to the apostle Paul. This is in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers. When I read that yesterday, I thought, wow. It's exactly what happened in Baton Rouge, East Baton Rouge, in danger from rivers. The Apostle Paul 
had danger from rivers long before those brothers and sisters in Baton Rouge had danger from rivers. Danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. Oh my goodness. Danger everywhere. Stoned. Can you imagine being stoned but not die? Hardship lost at sea. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And this, this one right here blows my mind. And apart from the other things that I just listed. There is the daily pressure on me. Of my anxiety for all the churches. That is so beautiful. The heart of a pastor. For the people that he's shepherding. He says, look, I've been through all of this. I've been through all these things. And they're difficult. and They're overwhelming. But to top it all off, I have a daily pressure in my heart for the sanctification and the growth of those that God has entrusted to me. Apostle Paul suffered. Listen to the Apostle Paul's perspective on suffering. This is earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction called life on planet earth is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We have no way to comprehend what heaven will be like. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So what is the Apostle Paul saying? I've gone through all of these things, all of these difficulties, all of these challenges. But my eye, my vision, my heart is not fixed on temporary things. My heart, my hope, my affections are fixed on what is unseen and on what is eternal. And I feel like the Apostle Paul would say this. Deliverance. Or no deliverance. We will not bow. Amen. Will you say that with me? Deliverance or no deliverance. We will not bow. We will not bow to the mounting pressure. Of our godless culture. We will not bow to the temptation of the enemy. To give up our faith in God. Whenever we suffer. Some of you are going through intense trials and pains. That I cannot relate to. Things that people probably don't even know. But deliverance or no deliverance, you cannot bow. You cannot give in to what the enemy would want you to do. He wants you to run off into the corner and to believe that God is not faithful. He wants to get you to the place to say, God, if you were good, you wouldn't have allowed my house to flood. He wants you to begin to believe those things. And if you, can, if you entertain those thoughts... Then you eventually begin to doubt and mistrust God's goodness and his faithfulness. And then we lose the ability to be salt and light. We will not bow. Deliverance or no deliverance. God, I'm I'm serving you because you are faithful. Amen. The fourth way that victory looks like in conclusion here. Victory looks like a godless culture. Unable to deny the power of the gospel. Let's read Daniel 3. The conclusion of the story. It says, 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, that's what happened. But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. It's amazing. No hair singed, no smell of smoke on their clothes. God delivered them from the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and yet set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. It's godless king. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this, in this way. Amen. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Yeah. Amen. That's what victory looks like. Amen. A godless king blessing the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, a godless king saying there's no God like that God. He may not serve the God. And eventually we'll see in this narrative as we continue, the king gets humbled and God works on his heart. So whenever we, deliverance or no deliverance, when we do not bow and we stand strong in faith and we say, God, my trust is in you. I will not, I will not allow my faith to be crushed in, in the middle of this. The world looks at that and says, how in the world can they do that? How in the world can somebody with a flooded home in Baton Rouge, and I've seen it on Facebook over and over again, flooded houses and they're smiling. The ones that I know, it's because they're believers. It's because their life is not centered around temporary possessions. Hey, I lost all my clothes. I lost a lot of memories. And they're at the front front of my street, in front of my house. They can all be thrown away. But I still have joy. You know what that does? It forces a godless culture to say, what is up with those people? That in spite of the diagnosis, in spite of the difficult marriage, in spite of the mistreatment, in spite of the ridicule, in spite of all the challenges that they face, they still have a peace. They still have a joy. They still trust God. What does the power of gospel look, what the power of the gospel look like in your life? I believe the power of the gospel looks like forgiveness and peace. Some of you, you were far from God. You didn't know God. And God, through his mercy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, grabs your heart. And you receive forgiveness of sins. And as a result of that forgiveness, you have peace with God. And what, is, what, 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 what else does the power of the gospel look like in your life? It looks like a new nature and changed desires. Before you were a believer, you had a nature that was set on rebellion and sin and disobedience. But when you become a Christian, the Bible says in Corinthians, it says that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made brand new. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ and you have been given a brand new nature. And that nature, that new tendency is towards obedience. And as a result of that new nature, this is what the power of the gospel does in your life. There's a hatred for sin. There's something in you that whenever you look at sin, you look at disobedience, there's a hatred of sin in your life. And then you, you love what pleases God. You love what pleases Him. It's not a struggle to 
honor God anymore. It's not a struggle to serve Him. It's the joy of your heart. And as, and this is another powerful thing that the gospel does in our life. It gives us a new capacity to forgive when people offend us. This is a new capacity. And why, why, why do we have that capacity? Because we never lose the view and the sight that we've been forgiven first. That we've been forgiven much. And then the power of the gospel impacts us in that we long to selflessly serve others. And that's the transition. We're forgiven. We have peace. We love God. We hate sin. And we forgive and love others. And we want to serve and meet other people's needs. And this is what happens whenever we, deliverance or no deliverance, we will not bow. We stand on the truths of God's word. And this is, this is what we become. This is who we are. This is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. Just like Nebuchadnezzar set that golden image on the hill. Just like our culture. They set their false gods up on the highest mountain so all the world can see. We're a city that's set on a hill. A city that cannot be hidden. Nor do people lie to lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light. To all that is in the house. In the same way let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your father who is in heaven. Amen. Amen. That's victory. That's victory. Victory is that the gospel would be made beautiful. In the lives of believers who live messy lives. Right? We live messy lives. We have difficulties. We have struggles. But the gospel is made beautiful whenever we have Whenever we demonstrate joy, when we demonstrate peace, when we demonstrate forgiveness, whenever we allow what God's done in our heart through the gospel message, we allow it to shine forth in our actions, in the way we respond, in the way we do not give up in difficulties, in the way we lean on God and we trust him. The gospel is, is, is adorned in a beautiful way through your life. That's how the gospel moves forward. That's victory. So victory looks different than what our culture wants it to look like. Victory for a Christian, we, we win many victories in our lives. And I know that there are many of you here this morning, you are struggling. You're going through many different things, and you, and you hear me even saying these things, and you think, that sounds so good, and I want to have peace, and I want to have joy, and, and I want to stand firm, but I'm struggling right now. I'm, 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 it's, it's hard right now, and I'm feeling overwhelmed, and I'm feeling like there's no hope. I want to pray for you this morning. I believe that God wants you to be encouraged this morning. So if if we could all just stand to our feet this morning. I just want to pray for those that are are hurting. I want to pray for those that are hurting that are not here. Those that that you know people that are hurting. Maybe you know you have friends and family that have been flooded out and you're here and they're not. I want you to stand in the gap for them this morning. But if you're here, and you're struggling right now. And you're just overwhelmed because of the trials and the pressures of life. I believe God just wanted to encourage you this morning. So if that's you, just let's just, in a symbolic way, let's just come down front. And let's just petition God. Let's lay our burdens down at his feet. Just make your way down front. If you're standing in the gap for someone, just do the same. Come stand for them. 
yeah, just come on down. We're just going to pray, pray this morning that God, would, that God would encourage us. You're struggling this morning. Come and receive some prayer this morning. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, God. Thank you for your word. It challenges us. else. We're going to wait for everybody. Tori's going to lead out this song that we sang to end our worship time.